This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 5 Our March into the Desert We had killed nine elephants, and it took us two days to cut out the tusks, and having brought them into camp, to bury them carefully in the sand under a large tree, which made a conspicuous mark for miles round. It was a wonderfully fine lot of ivory. I never saw a better, averaging as it did between forty and fifty pounds a tusk. The tusks of the great bull that killed poor Kiva scaled one hundred and seventy pounds the pair, so nearly as we could judge. As for Kiva himself, we buried what remained of him in an ant-bear hole, together with an assegai to protect himself with on his journey to a better world. On the third day we marched again, hoping that we might live to return to dig up our buried ivory. And in due course, after a long and wearisome tramp and many adventures which I have not space to detail, we reached Santanda's Kral, near the Lukanga River, the real starting point of our expedition. Very well do I recollect our arrival at that place. To the right was a scattered native settlement, with a few stone cattle kraals, and some cultivated lands down by the water where these savages grew their scanty supply of grain. And beyond it stretched great tracts of waving veld covered with tall grass, over which herds of the smaller game were wandering. To the left lay the vast desert. This spot appears to be the outpost of the fertile country, and it would be difficult to say to what natural causes such an abrupt change in the character of the soil is due. But so it is. Just below our encampment flowed a little stream, on the farther side of which is a stony slope, the same down which, twenty years before, I had seen poor Silvestre creeping back after his attempt to reach Solomon's Mines, and beyond that slope begins the waterless desert, covered with a species of Karoo shrub. It was evening when we pitched our camp, and the great ball of the sun was sinking into the desert, sending glorious rays of many-colored light flying all over its vast expense. Leaving good to superintend the arrangement of our little camp, I took Sir Henry with me, and walking to the top of the slope opposite, we gazed across the desert. The air was very clear, and far, far away I could distinguish the faint blue outlines, here and there capped with white, of the Suleiman Berg. There, I said, there is the wall round Solomon's Mines, but God knows if we shall ever climb it. "'My brother should be there, and if he is, I shall reach him somehow,' said Sir Henry, in that tone of quiet confidence which marked the man. "'I hope so,' I answered, and turned to go back to the camp, when I saw that we were not alone. Behind us, also gazing earnestly towards the far-off mountain, stood the great Kafir Umbopa, the Zulu spoke when he saw that I had observed him, 
addressing Sir Henry, to whom he had attached himself. "'Is it to that land that thou wouldst journey, Inkubu?' A native word, meaning, I believe, an elephant, and the name given to Sir Henry by the Kaffirs, he said, pointing toward the mountain with his broad assegai. I asked him sharply what he meant by addressing his master in that familiar way. It is very well for natives to have a name for one among themselves, but it is not decent that they should call a white man by their heavenish appellations to his face. The Zulu laughed a quiet little laugh which angered me. "'How dost thou know that I am not the equal of the Inkosi whom I serve?' he said. "'He is of a royal house, no doubt. One can see it in his size and by his mien. So mayhap am I. At least I am as great a man. Be my mouth, O Makumazan, and say my words to the Inkus Inkubu, my master.' for I would speak to him and to thee. I was angry with the man, for I am not accustomed to be talked to in that way by Kaffirs, but somehow he impressed me, and besides I was curious to know what he had to say. So I translated, expressing my opinion at the same time that he was an impudent fellow, and that his swagger was outrageous. Yes, Umbopa, answered Sir Henry, I would journey there. The desert is wide, and there is no water in it. The mountains are high and covered with snow, and man cannot say what lies beyond them, behind the place where the sun sets. How shalt thou come hither, Inkubu, and wherefore dost thou go? I translated again. Tell him, answered Sir Henry, that I go because I believe that a man of my blood, my brother, has gone there before me, and I journey to seek him. That is so, Inkubu. A Hottentot I met on the road told me that a white man went out into the desert two years ago towards those mountains with one servant, a hunter. They never came back. How do you know it was my brother? asked Sir Henry. Nay, I know not. But the Hottentot, when I asked what the white man was like, said that he had thine eyes and a black beard. He said, too, that the name of the hunter with him was Jim that he was a Bekawana hunter and wore clothes. There is no doubt about it, said I. I knew Jim well. Sir Henry nodded. I was sure of it, he said. If George set his mind upon a thing, he generally did it. It was always so from his boyhood. If he meant to cross the Suleiman Berg, he has crossed it, unless some accident overtook him, and we must look for him on the other side. Umbopa understood English, though he rarely spoke it. "'It is a far journey, Inkubu,' he put in, and I translated his remark. "'Yes,' answered Sir Henry, "'it is far, but there is no journey upon this earth that a man may not make if he sets his heart to it. There is nothing, Umbopa, that he cannot do. There are no mountains he may not climb. There are no deserts he cannot cross.' save a mountain and a desert of which you are spared the knowledge. If love leads him, and he holds his life in his hands, counting it as nothing, ready to keep it or lose it, as heaven above may order. I translated. Great words, my father, answered the Zulu. 
I always called him a Zulu, though he was not really one. Great swelling words fit to fill the mouth of a man. Thou art right, my father Inkaboo. Listen, what is life? It is a feather. It is the seed of the grass, blown hither and thither, sometimes multiplying itself and dying in the act, sometimes carried away into the heavens. But if that seed be good and heavy, it may, perchance, travel a little way on the road it wills. It is well to try and journey one's road, and to fight with the air. Man must die. At the worst, he can but die a little sooner. I will go with thee across the desert and over the mountains, unless perchance I fall to the ground on the way, my father. He paused a while, and then went on with one of those strange bursts of rhetorical eloquence that Zulus sometimes indulge in, which to my mind, full though they are of vain repetitions, show that the race is by no means devoid of poetic instinct and of intellectual power. What is life? Tell me, O white men who are wise, who know the secrets of the world, and of the world of stars, and the world that lies above and around the stars, who flash your words from afar without a voice. Tell me, white men, the secret of our life, whither it goes, and whence it comes. You cannot answer me, you know not. Listen, I will answer. Out of the dark we came, into the dark we go. Like a storm-driven bird at night we fly out of the nowhere. For a moment our wings are seen in the light of the fire, and lo, we are gone again into the nowhere. Life is nothing, life is all. It is the hand with which we hold off death. It is the glow-worm that shines in the night-time and is black in the morning. It is the white breath of the oxen in winter. It is the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself at sunset. "'You are a strange man,' said Sir Henry, when he had ceased. Umbopa laughed. "'It seems to me that we are much alike, Inkubu. Perhaps I seek a brother over the mountains.' I looked at him suspiciously. "'What dost thou mean?' I asked. "'What dost thou know of those mountains?' A little, a very little. There is a strange land yonder, a land of witchcraft and beautiful things, a land of brave people, and of trees and streams, and snowy peaks, and of a great white road. I have heard of it. But what is the good of talking? It grows dark. Those who live to see will see. Again I looked at him doubtfully. The man knew too much. You need not fear me, Makumazan, he said, interpreting my look. I dig no holes for you to fall in. I make no plots. If we ever cross these mountains behind the sun, I will tell what I know. But death sits upon them. Be wise and turn back. Go and hunt elephants, my masters. I have spoken. And without another word he lifted his spear in salutation and returned towards the camp where shortly afterwards we found him cleaning a gun like any other kaffir. 
"'That is an odd man,' said Sir Henry. "'Yes,' I answered, "'too odd by half. "'I don't like his little ways. "'He knows something, and he will not speak out. "'But I suppose it is no use quarreling with him. "'We were in for a curious trip, "'and a mysterious Zulu won't make much difference "'one way or another.' Next day we made our arrangements for starting. Of course, it was impossible to drag our heavy elephant rifles and other kit with us across the desert. So, dismissing our bearers, we made an arrangement with an old native who had a corral close by to take care of them till we returned. It went to my heart to leave such things as these sweet tools to the tender mercies of an old thief of a savage, whose greedy eyes I could see gloating over them. But I took some precautions. First of all, I loaded all the rifles, placing them at full cock, and informed him that if he touched them they would go off. He tried the experiment instantly with my eight-bore, and it did go off, and blew a hole right through one of his oxen, which were just then being driven up to the corral to say nothing of knocking him head over heels with the recoil. He got up considerably startled, and not at all pleased at the loss of the ox, which he had the impudence to ask me to pay for, and nothing would induce him to touch the guns again. Put the live devils out of the way up there in the thatch, he said, or they will murder us all. Then I told him that when we came back, if one of those things was missing, I would kill him and his people by witchcraft. And if we died and he tried to steal the rifles, I would come and haunt him and turn his cattle mad and his milk sour till life was a weariness, and he would make the devils in the guns come out and talk to him in a way he did not like, and generally gave him a good idea of judgment to come. After that he promised to look after them as though they were his father's spirit, he was a very superstitious old kafir and a great villain. Having thus disposed of our superfluous gear, we arranged the kit we five, Sir Henry, Good, myself, Umbopa, and the Hottentot Ventvogel, were to take with us on our journey. It was small enough, but do what we would, we could not get its weight down under about forty pounds a man. This is what it consisted of, the three express rifles and 200 rounds of ammunition, the two Winchester repeating rifles for Umbopa and Ventvogel, with 200 rounds of cartridges, five Cochrane's water bottles, each holding four pints, five blankets, 25 pounds weight of biltong, i.e. sun-dried game flesh, Ten pounds weight of best mixed beads for gifts. A selection of medicine, including an ounce of quinine and one or two small surgical instruments. Our knives, a few sundries such as a compass, matches, a pocket filter, tobacco, a trowel, a bottle of brandy, and the clothes we stood in. This was our total equipment, a small one indeed for such a venture but we dared not attempt to carry more. Indeed, that load was a heavy one per man with which to travel across the burning desert. 
for in such places every additional ounce tells. But we could not see our way to reducing the weight. There was nothing taken but what was absolutely necessary. With great difficulty, and by the promise of a present of a good hunting knife each, I succeeded in persuading three wretched natives from the village to come with us for the first stage, twenty miles, and to carry a large round gourd holding a gallon of water apiece. My object was to enable us to refill our water bottles after the first night's march, for we determined to start in the cool of the evening. I gave out to these natives that we were going to shoot ostriches, with which the desert abounded. They jabbered and shrugged their shoulders, saying that we were mad and should perish of thirst, which I must say seemed probable. But being desirous of obtaining the knives, which were almost unknown treasures up there, they consented to come, having probably reflected that, after all, our subsequent extinction would be no affair of theirs. All next day we rested and slept, and at sunset ate a hearty meal of fresh beef washed down with tea. The last, as good remark sadly, we were likely to drink for many a long day. Then, having made our final preparations, we lay down and waited for the moon to rise. At last, about nine o'clock, up she came in all her glory, flooding the wild country with light and throwing a silver sheen on the expanse of rolling desert before us, which looked as solemn and quiet and as alien to man as the star-studded firmament above. We rose up, and in a few minutes were ready, and yet we hesitated a little, as human nature is prone to hesitate on the threshold of an irrevocable step. We three white men stood by ourselves. Umbopa, guy in hand and a rifle across his shoulders, looked out fixedly across the desert a few paces ahead of us, while the hired natives with the gourds of water and Ventvogel were gathered in a little knot behind. "'Gentlemen,' said Sir Henry presently in his deep voice, "'we are going on about as strange a journey as men can make in this world.' It is very doubtful if we can succeed in it. But we are three men who will stand together for good or for evil to the last. Now, before we start, let us for a moment pray to the power who shapes the destinies of men and who ages since has marked out our paths, that it may please him to direct our steps in accordance with his will. Taking off his hat for the space of a minute or so, he covered his face with his hands, and Good and I did likewise. I do not say that I am a first-rate praying man. Few hunters are. And as for Sir Henry, I never heard him speak like that before, and only once since, though deep down in his heart I believe he is very religious. Good, too, is pious, though apt to swear. Anyhow... I do not remember, excepting on one single occasion, ever putting up a better prayer in my life than I did during that minute, and somehow I felt the happier for it. Our future was so completely unknown, and I think that the unknown and the awful always bring a man nearer to his maker. And now, said Sir Henry, trek. So we started. 
we had nothing to guide ourselves by except the distant mountains and old Jose da Silvestre's chart, which, considering that it was drawn by a dying and half-distraught man on a fragment of linen three centuries ago, was not a very satisfactory sort of thing to work with. Still, our sole hope of success depended upon it, such as it was. If we failed in finding that pool of bad water which the old dom marked as being situated in the middle of the desert, about sixty miles from our starting point, and as far from the mountains, in all probability we must perish miserably of thirst. But to my mind the chances of our finding it in that great sea of sand and Karoo scrub seemed almost infinitesimal. Even supposing that Da Silvestra had marked the pool correctly, what was there to prevent its having been dried up by the sun generations ago, or trampled in by game, or filled in with the drifting sand? On we tramped, silently as shades, through the night and in the heavy sand. The Karoo brushes caught our feet and retarded us, and the sand worked into our veltschuns and good shooting boots, so that every few miles we had to stop and empty them. But still the night kept fairly cool, though the atmosphere was thick and heavy, giving a sort of creamy feel to the air, and we made fair progress. It was very silent and lonely there in the desert, oppressively so indeed. Good felt this, and once began to whistle, The girl I left behind me, but the notes sounded lugubrious in that vast place, and he gave it up. Shortly afterwards, a little incident occurred which, though it startled us at the time, gave rise to a laugh. Good was leading as the holder of the compass, which, being a sailor, of course he understood thoroughly. And we were toiling along in single file behind him, when suddenly we heard the sound of an exclamation, and he vanished. Next second, there arose all around us a most extraordinary hubbub, snorts, groans, and wild sounds of rushing feet. In the faint light, too, we could descry dim galloping forms half hidden by wreaths of sand. The natives threw down their loads and prepared to bolt, but remembering there was nowhere to run to, they cast themselves upon the ground and howled out that it was ghosts. As for Sir Henry and myself, we stood amazed, nor was our amazement lessened when we perceived the form of good careening off in the direction of the mountains, apparently mounted on the back of a horse, and hallowing wildly. In another second he threw up his arms, and we heard him come to the earth with a thud. Then I saw what had happened. We had stumbled upon a herd of sleeping guaga, onto the back of one of which good had actually fallen and the brute, naturally enough, got up and made off with him. Calling out to the others that it was all right, I ran towards Good, much afraid lest he should be hurt, but to my great relief I found him sitting in the sand, his eyeglass still fixed firmly in his eye, rather shaken and very much frightened, but not in any way injured. After this we traveled on without any further misadventure till about one o'clock when we called a halt and having drunk a little water, not much, for water was precious, and rested for half an hour, we started again. On, on we went, till at last the east began to blush like the cheek of a girl. 
Then there came faint rays of primrose light that changed presently to golden bars, through which the dawn glided out across the desert. The stars grew pale, and paler still, till at last they vanished. The golden moon waxed wan, and her mountain ridges stood out against her sickly face like the bones on the cheek of a dying man. Then came spear upon spear of light flashing far away across the boundless wilderness, piercing and firing the veils of mist till the desert was draped in a tremulous golden glow, and it was day. Still we did not halt, though by this time we should have been glad enough to do so, for we knew that when once the sun was fully up it would be almost impossible for us to travel. At length, about an hour later, we spied a little pile of boulders rising out of the plain, and to this we dragged ourselves. As luck would have it, here we found an overhanging slab of rock, carpeted beneath with smooth sand, which afforded a most grateful shelter from the heat. Underneath this we crept, and each of us, having drunk some water and eaten a bit of biltong, we lay down and were soon sound asleep. It was three o'clock in the afternoon before we woke to find our bearers preparing to return. They had seen enough of the desert already, and no number of knives would have tempted them to come a step farther. So we took a hearty drink, and having emptied our water bottles, filled them up again from the gourds that they had brought with them, and then we watched them depart on their twenty-mile tramp home. At half-past four we also started. It was lonely and desolate work, for with the exception of a few ostriches, there was not a single living creature to be seen on all the vast expanse of sandy plain. Evidently it was too dry for game, and with the exception of a deadly-looking cobra or two, we saw no reptiles. One insect, however, we found abundant, and that was the common or housefly. There they came, not as single spies, but in battalions, as I think the Old Testament says somewhere. Editor's Note Readers must beware of accepting Mr. Quartermain's references as accurate as it has been found some are prone to do. Although his reading evidently was limited, the impression produced by it upon his mind was mixed. Thus to him the Old Testament and Shakespeare were interchangeable authorities. Go where you will, you find him, and so it must have been always. I have seen him enclosed in amber, which is, I was told, quite half a million years old, looking exactly like his descendant of today. And I have little doubt but that when the last man lies dying on the earth, he will be buzzing around, if this event happens to occur in summer, watching for an opportunity to settle on his nose. At sunset we halted, waiting for the moon to rise. At last she came up, beautiful and serene as ever, and with one halt about two o'clock in the morning, we trudged on wearily through the night, till at last the welcome sun put a period to our labors. We drank a little, and flung ourselves down on the sand, thoroughly tired out, and soon were all asleep. There was no need to set a watch, for we had nothing to fear from anybody or anything in that vast, untenanted plain. 
Our only enemies were heat, thirst, and flies, but far rather would I have faced any danger from man or beast than that awful trinity. This time we were not so lucky as to find a sheltering rock to guard us from the glare of the sun, with the result that about seven o'clock we woke up experiencing the exact sensations one would attribute to a beefsteak on a gridiron. We were literally being baked through and through. The burning sun seemed to be sucking our very blood out of us. We sat up and gasped. Whew, said I, grabbing at the halo of flies which buzzed cheerfully round my head. The heat did not affect them. My word, said Sir Henry. It is hot, echoed Good. It was hot indeed, and there was not a bit of shelter to be found. Look where we would, there was no rock or tree, nothing but an unending glare, rendered dazzling by the heated air that danced over the surface of the desert as it dances over a red-hot stove. What is to be done? asked Sir Henry. We can't stand this for long. We looked at each other blankly. I have it said good we must dig a hole get in it and cover ourselves with the karoo bushes it did not seem a very promising suggestion but at least it was better than nothing so we set to work and with the trowel we had brought with us and the help of our hands in about an hour we had succeeded in delving out a patch of ground some ten feet long by twelve wide to the depth of two feet then we cut a quantity of low scrub with our hunting knives, and creeping into the hole, pulled it over us all, with the exception of Ventvogel, on whom, being a hottentot, the heat had no particular effect. This gave us some slight shelter from the burning rays of the sun. But the atmosphere in that amateur grave can be better imagined than described. The black hole of Calcutta must have been a fool to it. Indeed, to this moment I do not know how we lived through the day. There we lay panting, and every now and again moistening our lips from our scanty supply of water. Had we followed our inclinations, we should have finished all we possessed in the first two hours. But we were forced to exercise the most rigid care, for if our water failed us, we knew that very soon we must perish miserably. But everything has an end, if only you live long enough to see it. And somehow that miserable day wore on towards evening. About three o'clock in the afternoon, we determined that we could bear it no longer. It would be better to die walking than to be killed slowly by heat and thirst in this dreadful hole. So taking each of us a little drink from our fast diminishing supply of water, now warm to about the same temperature as a man's blood, we staggered forward. We had then covered some fifty miles of wilderness. If the reader will refer to the rough copy and translation of old da Silvestra's map, he will see that the desert is marked as measuring forty leagues across, and the pan-bad water is set down as being about in the middle of it. Now forty leagues is one hundred and twenty miles, consequently we ought at the most to be within 12 or 15 miles of the water, if any should really exist. 
Through the afternoon we crept slowly and painfully along, scarcely doing more than a mile and a half in an hour. At sunset we rested again, waiting for the moon, and after drinking a little, managed to get some sleep. Before we lay down, Umbopa pointed out to us a slight and indistinct hillock on the flat surface of the plain, about eight miles away. At the distance, it looked like an anthill, and as I was dropping off to sleep, I fell to wondering what it could be. With the moon we marched again, feeling dreadfully exhausted, and suffering tortures from thirst and prickly heat. Nobody who has not felt it can know what we went through. We walked no longer, we staggered, now and again falling from exhaustion, and being obliged to call a halt every hour or so. We had scarcely energy left in us to speak. Up to this Good had chatted and joked, for he is a merry fellow, but now he had not a joke in him. At last, about two o'clock, utterly worn out in body and mind, we came to the foot of the queer hill, or sand copy, which at first sight resembled a gigantic ant heap about a hundred feet high, and covering at the base nearly two acres of ground. Here we halted, and driven to it by our desperate thirst, sucked down our last drops of water. We had but half a pint ahead, and each of us could have drunk a gallon. Then we lay down. Just as I was dropping off to sleep, I heard Mbopa remark to himself in Zulu, If we cannot find water, we shall all be dead before the moon rises tomorrow. I shuddered, hot as it was. The near prospect of such an awful death is not pleasant. But even the thought of it could not keep me from sleeping. End of chapter 5